Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back, and thanks again, listeners, for your fabulous support that has put Hidden History Happy Hour in the top 5% of broadcasts worldwide. Alex, I think that deserves another cheers. Cheers. Look, we have a very special guest for you today, listeners, an even bigger player on the world stage than our own Alex Dean, if you can imagine. I concede this. To boot, with a remarkable collection of historical documents, and in just a moment, Alex will introduce you to McLaren Racing CEO and amateur historian Zach Brown. But first, though, we know that many of you have saved the date for June 6, 2022, for our big live event in New York City. Today, we can share with you two big announcements. First, we will be having not one, but two live events in Manhattan in June, June 6th and June 7th, or 6th June and 7th June, if you're on the continent or in the UK and you're traveling here. And we are thrilled to announce that both events will be live at the Bowery's most haunted, and in my humble opinion, most fun bar and ghost sighting establishment, the Von Bar, that's V-O-N-B-A-R.com at 3 Bleecker Street in the Bowery. Please check out our show notes and go to vonbar.com and check this place out. And if you're in the New York City area, no need to wait until June 6th or 7th. Stop by the Von Bar anytime. Check out how cool it is, and maybe you'll even see a ghost. We've got some great surprises in store, even if you think you know about us and you know what we're about. One thing we can tell you today, though, is that the second live event in New York City, the June 7th event, will be a haunted hidden history hour where we'll talk ghosts, we'll talk ghost history, we'll talk the most haunted building in New York, and of course, We'll have some bespoke ghostly cocktails. So please join us for one or both of our live shows. And who knows, you might just end up on our show. And if that's not enough, if you RSVP for the event, you may win an autographed copy of Alex's book, Lessons from History. Please hit us up on Twitter or email at hiddenhistoryhappyhour at gmail.com. And we can't wait to meet all of you. Now, based on some of Zach's recent interviews, in addition to being fascinating and accomplished, Zach is remarkably candid, and so he'll fit right in here at the Hidden History Happy Hour. Alex. Thanks, Ryan. Zach, it's great to have you with us. Uh, Zach's been known to me for a little while. It's when you, when you meet people in business sometimes, and you think that is one interesting person who thinks about ideas and turned out and um, got a fascination with history that parallels my own. So, Zach, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, guys. Well, it's uh, just tell us about you, many of your, many people who know you in your professional industry may not know that you were a huge history buff and you're a huge collector. So how did that get started with you? Um, I think it got started by me missing most of my uh, school career. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know, I think when you're, you know, well, I can only speak for myself when you're young. Yeah, I wasn't fascinated by uh history i think i was uh in race car mode right. early on and mm -hmm. then uh, i think as you get a little bit older you start to appreciate the finer things in life and the, <laughs> the history and um so i just became fascinated i don't know probably 15 years ago um in, in kind of world 
history and mafia and prime ministers and, and just, you know, sometimes the, the same thing. So sometimes the same thing. Exactly. And uh, then, then set about collecting fascinating documents that then you kind of look back on and you look at the history behind each document. And uh, so it's just become a real, uh, a real hobby. Well, that's great. And um, when you say it became, were you 15 years ago, you were still driving or you, uh, let's see, I would have stopped driving in 2000. So okay. 22 years ago. Okay. And then, so there's this new interest develops and um, is there a particular area of history that you're more into than others? There's an American history, is it political history? Um, no, it's, it's kind of all the above. I've got my uh, collections kind of broken down into, uh, I have every uh, U.S. president uh, wow. and then uh, most of the significant uh, Americans, uh, politicians, whether it was, you know, Ben Franklin or uh, Alexander Hamilton. And then uh, I like the mafia. Uh, so uh, right. I've got the, you know, the John Gotti's and the Bugsy Siegel's and Al Capone's. Uh, then kings and queens. I've got uh, Henry VIII and Ferdinand and um, Fidel Castro. Uh, and then your Albert Einstein's and your Thomas Edison's and then your financial uh, you know, the John Rockefellers and Andrew Carnegie's. Right. So it's a bit of an eclectic uh, collection, but uh, it's something I've built up over the last 15 years. And what kind of, when you say you've got them, these are documents, these are, uh, is it, does it always have to be a signature or it could be handwriting? What kind of thing is it? So uh, it, it, they're predominantly letters um, right. and they're all, they're all signed. The, uh, I try and get things that have historical significance with the U.S. presidents because I wanted to have the collection. There's a few tick-the-box um, documents from some of, I mean, if there's such a thing as a lesser-known president. Right, but an you, obscure, you, you know, a more obscure uh, one. Yeah, the Woodrow Wilsons. I don't know why I'm picking on him. I uh, hope none of his descendants are listening. Um, but, you know, I made sure the, the <laughs> JFKs and the um, Eisenhowers and the Reagans and the Lincolns and the Washingtons that I've got something uh, of historical uh, significance. And uh, on the mobster side, have some arrest warrants and fingerprints, which are kind of mm. cool. Um, mm -hmm. And then things like uh, King Henry VIII was written by his scribe and then he signed it. That happened to be a, uh, a letter to a, a cardinal about his early marriage, so that was quite a, a cool. Which um, one? The, the first yeah. marriage, there. Exactly. Yeah, the, yeah, he sent in. I always get it in the wrong order. Uh, he sent in what was it, Catherine first and Anne Berlin, or the other way around? But he sent in uh, one of his people to go right. talk to a cardinal because, of course, he fell out with the. Uh, with the church back then. And he sent in the father of who was going to be his next wife to discuss an annulment. So we'll pretty, say, pretty so that cool. was, that was Catherine. And she, Catherine. Everything, I always, the easiest thing to remember about Catherine, which people forget is that she was married to Henry's brother. She was yeah. married yes. to, to <laughs> Arthur who died. And then she married Henry um, after he went on the throne. Um, so, and he had, he, they had to get a papal dispensation to get married. So but these, the Pope must have been really bothered by all these. <laughs> you first well, of all, hey, you get a look, dispensation to marry her. Now you want a dispensation to get rid of her. Look, Sam. <laughs> yeah, none of that stuff would have flying today, would it? 
So, no, well, I, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I just want to say Sam Neill did a great job of negotiating that whole thing uh, for Henry. And also, Zach, I, I want to mention that uh, I'm actually the son of an Episcopal minister. And as you probably know, the Episcopal Church in the U.S. is the offshoot of the Church of England. So I always like to say the only reason my father's job existed is that Henry VIII wanted a divorce. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Now, yeah. No. Cool that's, that's a great that's a great set of documents mm -hmm. most most people who are into the kind of history that you're setting out have a favorite president so i want to know first of all who your favorite president is but second of all um what do you have what's the document that you have from your favorite president obviously zachary um, taylor yeah yeah he would be one of the uh, lesser known ones and he spelled his name wrong so uh, had <laughs> he spelt it right uh maybe i would have uh uh, let's see. So I've got uh, my George Washington document is pretty fascinating. It is a letter to uh, a person in his military uh, giving them grief. Now, I'm, I'm not quite how he's written it, but giving <laughs> him grief for not capturing Benedict Arnold uh, and letting him oh, slide wow. through. Wow. Yeah. So that's a pretty cool man without a country. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So that's a pretty uh cool uh, piece. Um, I, I've got an Alexander Hamilton, which of course is not, yeah. wasn't a president, but he uh, wrote a letter on the orders of George Washington uh, to get some money put together for the Whiskey Rebellion. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a pretty that's, that's historic, cool yeah. piece. Yeah. Then I've got a, a JFK and Robert Kennedy uh, signing a pardon for a mafia member, which I think is kind of cool. Uh -huh, um, yes. And then uh, another one that is very historically significant is the letter from Richard Nixon to Kissinger resigning the presidency. Of the you United have States. that. You, you have, have you that? have that letter. Yeah, I've yeah. seen that. I've seen pictures of that everywhere with yeah. the kind of yeah. initialed HK when he received it. I, I how have, do you possibly gosh. have that? How do so, you possibly have that? So here's what's interesting um, with, uh, and then I'll tell you another piece that I, I, I have that is probably the most unique. Um, these things get passed down from generation, families, things right. of that nature. And I think, you, you know, if I look at, you, you know, my kids who um, don't have the same level of appreciation for the uh, <laughs> historical documents that I do, I think, well, not I think, I know what happens is as these things get, you know, handed off to family members, friends, and family, and they become further separated for them, the people that appreciated them at the time, people right. go, how much is this thing worth? Uh, mm -hmm. I'll take the cash. Let's, let's you know? find out. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, Kissinger's, I'm, I'm, Kissinger's still alive. So, I mean, yeah, he didn't, yeah. I doubt he'd give that away. Well, did he? Well, he well also, have, it should, uh, also, he, it should be in the have. National Archives. <laughs> No, I'm glad yeah. it's with Zach, actually. Yeah. So, well, and, I, and I've also got, I mean, I know we're not kind of baseball guys necessarily, but that's another one that blows me away is I have, uh, I don't know if you guys remember Pete Rose, but I have his remember. rookie. Yeah, I've got his rookie of the year trophy. Now, Pete sold all his stuff when he ran into uh, uh, issues. So you've got things that you would sit there and go, why would someone ever yeah. get rid of that? I've also got Nikki Lauda's first Formula One Grand Prix winning trophy. And when Nikki was around, I actually asked him about it. And he remembered giving it to a guy at a petrol station, a guy who owned a petrol station. Oh, oh, wow. And 
I mean, who would have ever thought they would give up their first Grand Prix trophy? So you get things in in uh, probably the one that is uh, the most fascinating is I have uh, Jacqueline Kennedy's uh, handwritten will um, from 1964. And where that went was that was handwritten by her, passed to her lawyer, passed to the accountant. Accountant gave it to the daughter. You know, and this is all a while ago. And ultimately got sold. The thing that's most fascinating about that document is unlike today's will, where it's all typed out and it says this bank account goes here and this bank account goes there. This has, you know, the desk that Charles de Gaulle left in the White House for Jack. I want that to go to, I can't remember if she called him John Jr. or Jack Jr. The watch that Jack was wearing that day in Dallas, I want that going to John Jr. The necklace that Jack gave me for our 10th wedding anniversary, I want going mm. to Carol. I mean, it's a very 10-page no and the most fascinating piece is at the end, after she signs it, it says, P.S., in the unlikely event I get remarried, I oh, want boy. to be buried next to Jack in Arlington, even if against even if it's against my future husband's will. My yeah. word. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that that is that's, that is incredible. That's the one. Yeah, that's the one that's like memory lane because it it, it the, the level of detail is spectacular. It's just it's right. a personal memoir of her and Jack and, and and how she got everything, where it came from, why it had a meaning to her, and where she wanted it to go. It was fascinating. Well, Zach, all we have to do is track down the handwritten directions from Putin that all these oligarchs could commit suicide. That's going to be a major addition <laughs> to your collection. Yeah, I, um, I think I've got a few, uh, few Russian uh, pieces, but nothing from, uh, nothing from the current guy. Well, That's it's not I history yet, you, right? Well, I was going to ask you about, yeah, you've got stuff in English, um, but you also have stuff in other languages. So you've got, obviously yes. you've got some stuff, in, stuff in Russian. Yes. Yeah. And, and French, some Napoleon, you know, some of it's um, pretty difficult. Well, obviously the, the French and the Italian and that, I, I, I don't speak those languages, but even as you know, the more historical, um, you, you know, British, you know, I can't read the Henry VIII no, the handwriting. document. Yeah. No, I can't. I, I, I don't have a clue. It's, it's been translated for me, but yeah. yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't read it. Right, that's int- and you said you have you have something from Nepo- that was Napoleon's. Yeah, no, the my Napoleon document isn't that exciting. It was a military um, appointment, uh, right. so my Napoleon's not uh, overly exciting. But so still, the, the 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 great man signed it. Well, this is something. It's very interesting to me. You talk about having one thing, and then do you do you only have you only have one thing in the archive from any given person or individual. Yes, I've tried to get a uh, a variety, so I don't have uh, multiple of any uh, any person. Right, right. Sorry, uh, Brian, I interrupted you. No, no, no I was just going to ask Zach because I'm fascinated by this. You know, we're we're running up to our 14th episode, uh, thanks to everybody, and I at least have become more and more interested in kind of the practice of history itself. You know, amateur and professional, and how do we rely on things? We had a great guest 
last time talking about the ancient Greek warfare and you have an impressive, maybe unique set of actual signed historical documents. What do you think will be the, what, what will the Zach Brown in a hundred years be looking at from our era? Will it be tw tweets after Elon Musk buys Twitter and opens <laughs> and, it up? What, what are the, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, right. Will it be, and what, what, what will be the primary sources a hundred years from now? Do you think? Well, I, you know, I, it's funny. I've been approached uh, uh, a lot about NFTs around my mm -hmm. collection, uh, which, you know, that's the new, it's the, it's the digital yes. age. And I know, I think the it was what Jack Dorsey. Right? Yeah, exactly. And I guess uh, if I remember correctly, the first ever tweet sent by Jack Dorsey went for a couple million dollars exactly. um, uh, a year or two ago. So I guess that's where it's going to go. I think everyone's always going to have an appreciation for history. So uh, all these uh, guys and gals, they're not signing these anymore. So right. I'd like to think while maybe the historical documents will be collected in a different manner, uh, there is still always going to be an appreciation for you know, the original thing. Um, I, 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 I agree, but also though, there's a huge question of verification, right? So a hundred years from now, if someone looks at a tweet that is signed by quote unquote, let's say Donald Trump, how do they know that's Donald Trump versus uh, a bot farm in St. Petersburg? And so to anal analogize that to what you have, how did you validate the authenticity of the things you purchased? Yeah. So I've uh, been had over a couple of times, fortunately, not many, um, the, the newer stuff. If only Alice is, could say that. Thank yeah. you, <laughs> the, uh, the, the newer stuff, I think the presidents went to Autopen sometime in the 60s, you know, and then today, yes, you, you know, I would imagine almost everything's uh, Autopen. You, you know, when you are known as a collector, you know where to buy from and who to buy mm -hmm. from. And then the uh, older the document, the harder it is, you know, like a clip signature, which I would never buy. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's the easiest to forge. You start getting into a document from Henry VIII. Yeah. A lot of effort goes into getting the paper right, the ink mm -hmm. right. You, you know, it's a long, it's a full page. Uh, so to, to, to be able to replicate that is pretty darn difficult you want to buy from reputable auction houses and and reputable uh, collectors uh so i get everything verified or i know who i'm buying from mm -hmm. uh I, i've had uh, my winston churchill which was a signed photo uh wow. was was not real i've since you know replaced it it feels pretty uh, dirty as you can imagine if you yeah, bought you something yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you never quite know um you know i i got i upgraded my churchill so i actually sold my churchill to another collector he bought it and he's the one that then came back and went oh it's not it's not real so it's oh, it, you know you can't get you can't get fooled but the, the more complicated the document um the the better and then the other thing you have to be careful of are stolen documents yep. um so uh, i've been uh, presented 
with uh, documents that shouldn't be in someone's hands. And so you have to right. be uh, mm-hmm. careful, careful there. So, for, you know, I've been, I've been doing it a long time. I, I usually the uh, fake stuff is the, is the sucker, the kind of first timer. So I think once you get <laughs> pretty experienced, uh, you, you know, I hope nothing that's uh, in my collection isn't what I think it is. So, um, so- so a couple notes about AutoPen, for our, particularly for our North American listeners. Uh, I was a Senate aide pretty much right out of college. And the very first thing you learn to do if you work for a U.S. senator is forge their name. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, we've had with some of our, our racing drivers, not our current two, uh, and I stopped it. Uh, we've had over the years managers uh sign on behalf of the the drivers and i i put a stop to that as mm-hmm. soon as i heard about it um i'd rather not give a fan a signature than give them right. someone else's right. signature because you know yeah. they put it on their wall they put it on the yeah. desk and, and they admire it and it's from their hero and and i know what it feels like to then find out at a later date it's not real. I would have rather not had it in the first place. So right. um, you definitely have to be uh, uh, careful uh, these, these days. Um, what kind of, these are, you know, con artists who must be very gifted, I suppose, if they're able to forge documents that are, you know, convincing enough to get past an auction house or get past a, an expert who you've instructed to evaluate something, right? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of money on the line. So the uh, the, the payoff, um, you, you know, even if they're sitting there all day trying to perfect it and have to throw away 25 of them before they go, ooh, that one looks pretty good because, a, you know, pen and a piece of paper won't uh, call a much, uh, cost much and then it's count, counterfeit, you, you know, money. It's, it's funny, one of my favorite shows is American Greed. And you sit there and these criminals – they're, they're pretty darn smart and you go, God, if they would have just channeled that mm-hmm. in a right. positive, positive way. I mean, you, you go back and you look at the, you know, Enrons and the Madoffs of the world. I mean, you gotta be a genius to do what he did. You know, eventually the, the, the song stops and these guys are still caught dancing, but you know, Madoff was no dummy to be able to do Correct. what well, he yeah. did for it, as long as he did. I mean, the guy's a, a genius. Unfortunately, it's, it's, he it's, it's pointed the it the wrong direction. It's the genius, but it's also the brazenness. Like they yeah. just figured if they tell the same lie enough times, it's gonna be believed. It was funny on 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 Madoff. I was uh, well, still am friends with the uh, former. Uh, CEO of, of UBS, and uh, I asked him about it once, and uh, he said, yeah, I went to go see him, and it didn't make sense to me. It's amazing how many now people come out and say, "Right, I of never course. believed it, exactly. and, and so he was uh, he was at Credit Suisse at the time, and he, he went in, and he said Madoff was ultra aggressive with him, you know, who do you think mm-hmm. you are? It's, you just went on the total offense mm-hmm. uh he then came back uh kind of told the clients i don't believe it you shouldn't do it half left and for 10 years it went on and those that left were furious because they thought they left and um they shouldn't have because it just continued and then half stayed in i mean i might have my numbers wrong but you know a, a strong amount stayed in and then they ended up getting 
burned and those that pulled out, you know, 10 years later, look back and went, that was just, you know, smartest thing. So I think some people, I think you have to trust your instinct. If I come across something that just doesn't feel right, there's, there's no document I have to have. So if something doesn't feel right, right I walk. It's interesting. Um, Bernie Madoff um, is the example that you chose. Uh, I thought it was very uh, astute. We had a guest on our show called Willard Foxton, um, who's a documentary uh, maker and a, a, a great lover of history like like us. And um, his father was um, was a, a Madoff uh, victim. They lost all of their family money. And in the end, um, I'm afraid his uh, father... Um, face face with this um didn't want to go on and uh yeah. he, he killed it. he took his own life and um so we've had a we've seen the we know a little about the the fallout from these these people and they brian is right can be brazen and it can be awful but god it, the consequences that those those things have had for people's lives they lose their family savings and so forth well i spent i spent i spent a good chunk of my career prosecuting cali cartel kingpins in the clinton administration and it's the same thing. They right. just bully their way through. And until somebody gets in their way, that's willing to risk everything, they succeed. I'm not drawing any parallels to any contemporary no, no. issues. I, I huh. Yeah. Okay. Now I understand. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, let's back, Zach, Zach, back to, back to you. Um, I have no, um, background in in history not even as an, an undergraduate I, i've developed this uh, fascination over time and that's like you it's not it's not my job and it's not not your job but i wonder if your interest in history informs your work um have you deployed lessons from history in your present day life do you, do you find echo formula one course of rich history uh, what's the what's the historical angle on your day-to-day -day? yeah i i think with me uh, you know, I love the history of, of, of motor racing, um, you know, as much, if not even more than the historical documents. So I've, got a, <laughs> I've got a car collection that, that is, is historic to me and memorable and, you know, have memories of, of great races and great drivers and great championships. And uh, I do uh, collect things from uh, racing now that uh, okay it's probably not going to be quite as cool as uh henry the eighth but you know things like when i did this shoey with daniel uh ricardo on the monza podium that was quite a cool moment i kept the shoe i kept the, the champagne bottles so certainly can't compare that <laughs> to the significance of of george washington but but things that you know mean something time, to you. definitely yeah. mean something to, to to me and mean something to you know my family. So I think that'll be something that uh, when, uh, when my uh, time uh, comes, you know, my kids will go, I was there with dad when he was on the right. podium right, in right, Monza. Right. So, you know, creating a little bit of more, more family history than I think that anything that's going to sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, just, nice. just to take, take a little bit of a turn, Zach, I, I checked out your recent interview at the Oxford union and Alex, I know, you know, Oxford doesn't count to you, but it was a very effective Not very a good interview. And <laughs> it struck me that the way you described the competition in the racing business, including what we in the intelligence uh, business would have called information operations is in, you know, in many ways, similar to warfare, you're disrupting, disrupting enemy plans, you're attacking in unexpected places, you're 
picking and choosing your fights. How, how do you, if at all, translate your knowledge of the history of warfare to your day job? Um, great question. Yeah, this is a good question. Um, I guess you, 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 you fight to win <laughs> for, for starters. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's two types of, uh, CEOs in this world, or at least I'm told there are, uh, and, and I wouldn't even necessarily say CEOs, people, and those people that are motivated by the thrill of victory and those that are motivated by the fear of defeat. And I'm very much motivated by the fear of, of defeat. I, I kind of, which is probably the unhealthier way to go through life uh, is is because it comes with a constant uh, pressure. Uh, and But that's what motivates uh, motivates me. I, I kind of like being the, the underdog. Um, and I think great leaders in this world have great people around them, are great communicators for the most part. And uh, so those are things that I admire about uh, historical leaders and, and things. I don't think I consciously go, well, you know, this president did this, so this is how I'm going right. uh, to do it. But that's that's kind of how I, how I roll. Well, so Zach, amongst your other accomplishments, you're, if my count is correct, thrice in the Sports Business Journal 40, 40 Under 40 Hall of Fame. Um, so you come from not just being a driver yourself, but also a journalist. Uh, how do you feel the current crop of sources of information, including journalism, including podcasts, will inform the future of history? Um, another good question. I, and I wouldn't want to paint and I won't paint everybody with this brush because that right. is not fair. Um, there is great journalism and then there's really poor journalism and i think the you know i'll make this stat up and it's a made-up stat so i apologize to anyone that doesn't hey, do we, we rely stat. on made-up stats <laughs> welcome to our show so if the media you know pick it 20 years ago was you know 80 percent accurate 20 percent wrong um, I, I'm not saying it's gone 2080, but I, I know from You're a lot of stuff that, 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 yeah, that I, that I read that I, I know the facts on, right. I'm shocked yep. at the varying degrees of, they got that a little bit wrong to what are they talking about? Well, and, yeah. and, and intentionally wrong and intentionally just wrong. didn't and, check their sources. Correct. And then, unfortunately, um, most people believe what they read. And, you, you know, it, you know, it's no different than, than COVID, which has been uh, horrific. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. But, you know, depending on what news channel you turn on, you know, the varying degrees, you know, one TV channel, it's, you know, it's all over. To flip the channel and you know it's the world's coming to an end. Trying to, yeah yeah and, and it's everywhere in between so i now um i try not to almost overread because you can get so many different 
uh, variations on the same story. And to your point, either from just poor journalism and not fact checking to, you know, deliberate, we're trying to, to, to change the story. And that's, that's, that's unfortunate because as there's so much um, noise in the system now, uh, because, you know, in the good old days, it was four or five TV channels. Now it's tens of thousands um, with from social media to TV to, to podcasts that you have to be kind of pretty careful at, at what you believe these days. Well, well, let's take a quick pause and just thank you for your team's work with the UK government to produce vital equipment at the outside of the COVID crisis. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. So when the UK government ran into their uh, challenges, well, everybody did around uh, lack of ventilators, because obviously no one was uh, prepared or anticipating uh, what, what had happened here with, with COVID. Uh, we, we, amongst a handful of Formula One teams and other kind of manufacturing and engineering uh, companies, we came together and uh, developed and built like 10 years worth of ventilators right. in about... 10 weeks, which was something, you know, when I used to walk around McLaren, I used to say, you you know, when we were kind of not having good days, hey, pick your head up. We're we're racing cars around Monaco. We're making people's lives better. We're not saving lives. But actually, a couple years later, to be able to say to those same people we were was um, felt really good. We are very proud about it. It shows what I, I think when COVID happened, it showed how great people can come together when they're all aligned and, and kind of politics are dropped and, and you're trying to globally solve a problem. Paul, Paul and the oars in the same way and, and thinking entrepreneurially, it's, it's, it's a kind of an amazing story really, but let me ask you this. So if you, if another pandemic comes around or another global emergency comes around, what would you want our governments to do differently to engage the private sector? Or do you feel like uh, everything was pretty good last time? Um, I, I think we were pretty slow to react, mm-hmm. um, but then very fast in a good way mm-hmm. to react to, to pull out of this because it, it clearly um, was not sustainable, you, you know, fiscally or, or, or mentally uh, or even health to, to just all live in lockdown uh, mm-hmm. forever. At some point you had to, you know, these vaccines were awesome how quickly the world came together. I mean, that was, that was stunning. Yeah. That's going to be, I mean, as Alex knows, I'm not a huge fan of Donald Trump, but that effort that was going to be written in journals hundred years from now, 200 years from now. It's uh, I, I served in the federal government for a long time. And the idea of getting a memo signed in the time that they ramped up warp speed is, is mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that is, and, and I love uh, kind of politics and history. I look at how difficult it is to get the 10 team bosses in Formula One <laughs> to all yeah. row the same direction. Yes, right. it's, it's now clear to me why some governments around the world 
move as slow as they do and things can't get done because we can't get, you know, the 10 team bosses together. You know, as I say, the only thing we've ever unanimously agreed on is that we'll never unanimously agree on anything. So talk, so talk about that, Zach. So you've got this very significant historical background in documents and you have the experience of the politics, small p, of racing. Do you have best practices for our listeners? If you're, we have a lot of listeners in the government space. Uh, do you have lessons for how they should try to make progress versus be stalled? Whew. Um, I, I wish I knew the answer uh, to that because we, we stall often. Um, you, you know, I think the biggest thing that I've tried to do in Formula One mm -hmm. is get people to agree on the concept, then work through the details right. because often, and we're going through some topics now, we're always going through topics. Those that are against it, they try and stop it with all the reasons why it won't work. And it's like, well, hold on, let's, let's, let's agree on the concept. And then let's talk about all the challenges, but they, it, it's kind of a way they use to stop progress. And so hmm, not having right. ever sit in government before, so I don't know exactly how it all works, but I, I try and, you know, let's not let the details get in the way of the big picture That's and let's agree on the works. big picture. Yeah. 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 And it's, uh, and it's, it's, it's difficult. Uh, you know, I now have an appreciation for why, why things are, uh, difficult to to get through. I think you know the only thing you can do is be passionate about a topic and and stay with it. Well, this is the journey I've been on. So I started as a baby CIA analyst during Reagan, and you know, often on work my way up. And I kept thinking naively, if I just got to the right layer of the onion, there would be a bunch of you know, wise philosopher kings that were unencumbered by political corruption and would just do the right thing. And the genius of our founding fathers, Zach, and I, I think this probably comes out in some of your materials that you've collected, is they just assumed there were never going to be a philosopher king. And these are all going to be humans, and we had to have checks and balances to control them. Yeah, I, I um, it, it is amazing to look back on history and see how right they got mm -hmm. most things and how simple they were. And, and now, of course, the level of detail that goes behind each one. But, you know, the founding fathers in America, you know, I mean, who, who would have thought a handful of guys were going to, you know, sit in a room and you know, knock out the rules of America. And it was a startup, day, right? Yeah. yeah. And it, to this day, <laughs> they, they did a pretty damn good job. Yeah. So to, uh, I'm going to throw it back to Alex in a second here, but two other things I'm curious about is one, I, I've watched not only the F1 documentary on Netflix, which is great, but also some of your interviews. And there's two, <laughs> I just said one, but I'm about to list two. And that just proves to our listeners that we actually are drinking. And to that point, <laughs> I'm drinking a little Johnny Walker right now. I hope this is not a faux pas. I hope you guys are still deeply involved with them. But um, 
one, women in racing. I'd love to yep. hear your thoughts on that, especially given that I have two daughters, 23 and 21, and two, environment. Um, are electric cars the future? Can it be as exciting? What, what do you think is the responsibility of people in your seat to, to worry about that? Yeah, uh, so I'll, I'll tackle both of those. Uh, for, first, women. I presume you're talking about women drivers as opposed yes. to just well, women in sport. So, well, both, 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 but you've encouraged both as far as I can tell. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, we have our first uh, female racing driver in, in Elma Gilmore and right. Extremely, and one of the reasons we entered Extremely, uh, well, not one of, but the, the primary, was uh, gender equality and uh, sustainability. And so there, there can be, there has been, uh, mm -hmm. And there will be in the future a female Formula One driver. And there are females racing in motorsports around the world. Danica Patrick won an IndyCar mm -hmm. race. Yeah. I think the, the reality is you, for, for every Lando Norris, there are, pick a number, 10,000 people that wanted to be Lando Norris. And so like all these sports, it's a pyramid and it's a numbers game. And if you don't have a lot of, you know, whether it's a, a gender or a, a race or a country, um, a lot of volume at that kind of grassroots level, as you start to weed out the talent, Formula One's got the 20 best drivers in the world. And it mm -hmm. took, I don't know what the number is, you know, 100,000 people around the world racing to get to that 20 or 50,000 pick a number. Right. It's a lot of people around the world. That's how we the, feel about our podcast, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, when you go to the, you know, the go-kart track, which I go to from time to time, you'll have, mm -hmm. Oh, probably 200 drivers at, at any one weekend, but you probably only have 15 females. And so yeah. the, the odds are stacked against them from the word go. Mm -hmm. And the reality is a lot of carding starts with father taking, you know, his six-year-old son to go carding. Mm -hmm. So what we, we need to do is expose uh, more, more girls. That's the age in which you, you need to start racing is six, seven years old. To, to carding. So until you get that volume of participants, right. it's going to be hard. Um, you know, same thing with U.S. drivers. You know, there's yeah. been very few U.S. drivers, men drivers in Formula One. That's because the system right. really requires you to be in Europe. So let's yeah. take gender out of it of those same 200 carters that I've just told you about at any one weekend in Europe, while 10 or 15 might be girls, I bet there's no more than 10 or 15 Americans. And so that's where, right. you know, if you want to call it a, the, the problem starts is we need more uh, of these different genders and races and countries at that grassroots level. But can an American be in Formula One? Of course. Can yeah. a female be in Formula One? Of course, unlike maybe some other sports where right. exactly. you know pure size and strength is required, uh, what 
requires a great Formula One driver's hand-eye coordination. So they well, can do that as well as men. Um, neck strength, that's probably the, the biggest area of strength, but that can be worked on. And then what makes a great Formula One driver is intelligence. Yes. And, you know, I think there'd be plenty of people that would argue they're smarter than us. <laughs> <laughs> I know that Alex and I both have a person in our lives who would argue that very vociferously. And, you know, that's the thing. So I'll just say I came into this not a Formula One fan, although I will also say, at least I have a driver's license, which some people on this podcast do not have. But <laughs> I, I watched the Netflix documentary. I watched a lot of your interviews. And I have to admit to a certain bias that the more expensive gear an athlete requires to succeed, the less sort of, you know, Olympianly valid it is. But I'm changing my mind and I might even become a fan of racing. Thanks to watching this stuff. Oh, it's uh, Netflix has done a unbelievable job of bringing on a younger audience, a female audience, yep. a new audience. And I think our sports always been fascinating, but it's always been broadcast from a race cars going around a racetrack. And there's so many other elements Right. to the sport, um, you know, the, the money and the business that's um, unlike any other sport that Netflix has really captured the off-track action and people find it fascinating. It is, it is fascinating. And well, I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, I knew nothing about Formula One to I won't miss a Formula One race now. It's <laughs> right. not just created, right. it's created total fandom. Well, I'm fairly sure 10 minutes ago, I said I was going to throw it back to Alex, but one, one other question, and then I will shut my mouth, maybe. And that is, how do you, how do you track the information operations that you do? It was, it was pretty clear from your Oxford Union interview that you view all manner of psychological operations valid against your quote unquote enemy. How do you know what's cool and what's not legit? Um, I'm not sure I fully understand that question. In, in, in what sense? Well, what I mean is you, you talked about how you will go out and recruit drivers. I think my interpretation that you don't really need just to screw with your enemy. How much of oh, the game yes. is psychological Psycholo versus not? Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a lot. <laughs> it's, <laughs> that's, it's a lot. That's what I thought. It's a lot. Yeah. No, it's the the uh, politics, and it's something that I I, I enjoy because it, it is part of the game, and whether it's uh, around uh, corporate partners, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's around talent whether it's around strategy, whether it's around um, trying to influence uh, rules. I mean, if you, if you take it to its extreme, you know, yeah. last year the championship was concluded. There was a lot of politics going on around. Yeah. There. And you've, you've talked about that. You've talked about the yeah. role of each company and each team and dealing with that. Yeah. So, so that, that's a big part of, 
uh, our sport is is the, the psychological element and it's between the drivers team bosses and the engineers and, and you know and even just from a sporting standpoint you're sometimes using you know we all speak in code because we listen we're allowed to listen to each other and you know now we're going to start getting into ai and voice recognition mm -hmm. because and it's fascinating this comes back to drivers having to be very smart we'll ask you know lando or daniel a question and depending uh -huh. on how right. we ask them the question we want either a real answer or a bogus answer because we're trying to you know, you know draw another team into a pit stop. Correct. And so we're maybe uh -huh. either trying to throw them off our pit stop strategy. And so how a racing driver can be going 200 miles an hour on the absolute limit, fiddling with their steering wheel to get the car to go faster, <laughs> oh and then be able to go Remember what your code is. Yeah, remember, yeah. Is, that a, is, is that a real question or yeah. not a real question? Crazy. It, it, it's, it's, the just, answer, it's fascinating. The answer is blue. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Would you, Zach? Would you change that rule? Would you? Would you change the rule so people can't? Do, do you think it's part of the game? Do you think it's part? I of think the it's sport? part of the game. I think it's right. great. No, I think it's part of the ah, game. Ah, fair enough. That's oh, that's real. Oh, that's sort of espionage levels of comms in F one that I hadn't thought about. One thing I did want to ask you is because we're talking about um, current events and you know what Brian was asking earlier. You know, is is this history yet? And you guys are uh, making history in your sport with the new venture into Miami. And I, um, you know, this is one of the things you were talking about. Memories you're gonna, you know, you look back on when you retire and your families look at your collection and think, you know, I was there when Dad did this or that. Is my is this a real yardstick? Is the Miami venture um, a really big? Um, is it as big a deal as I think it is? And why? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's a huge deal. Um, you know, America now, and I think Netflix has played a, a huge part in that. Is, is totally embraced uh, Formula One. America is fascinated by the sport that has this great history, but it's kind of new to a lot of people. And it's got a great promoter, the owners of the uh, NFL Dolphins, uh, Miami Dolphins, uh, who, who knows how to promote. You've got an A-list uh, celebrities. I've never seen as much corporate demand and fan demand for a Grand Prix as I have uh, is that, Miami. Is that right? Gosh. Yeah, so it's, much it's, more than Austin? Much more than Texas? Well, Texas has been unbelievable, but Miami's right. just at another, at another level. level. And, right. and I think you know, some of it's market. Uh, some of its timing, right? Uh, Austin, right. I don't, I don't think we would have a Miami if it wasn't for Austin. So I think Austin yeah, they got you there. Is yeah. yeah, Austin, Austin's do as much credit as anyone. Last year, Austin was the biggest ever live attended Formula One race. So wow. some people have said to me, "Is, is Austin that right?" Off. Yeah. yeah, and it was spectacular. So I think, and now you've got Vegas coming on the back of that, which right. I think will have the same demand as, as Miami. I think Miami and Vegas will only drive more excitement for Austin. So you now have Netflix, a great broadcaster, fantastic racing, and three great races, you know, Texas, which, you know, has great technology companies. It's a, it's a, it's a you know, great college town. It's a, it's a right. youthful uh, city and in, in state. You've got Miami, which is very international. And then of course, Las Vegas, which has all the bling of what, you know, we think about in, in Formula One. I think it's almost the, uh, you know, the next Monaco. So you put all right. those together, right. Formula One's just on fire. So it's, it's, that's a great, that's great to know. And if, but if I think about 
um, the level of enthusiasm in America for sport per se, which is, you know, sports crazy country, the level of enthusiasm in America for motor ventures, racing and, and leisure and so forth, which is huge. And the footprint of F1 in other parts of the world where, you know, in Europe, you've got lots of races in different places. That would imply to me that three is the beginning and that, you know, it's not going to be, you know, it's never going to be Miami instead of Austin. It's, it implies there's going to be no upper limit to the number of, of new F1 um, championships that you potentially could have in, in the United States, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. I think three is is the max. I, I think we're in. A oh, right. Okay. Okay. Uh, wow. We o- only because we need to. You know, it's a global championship, and, and right. I would now say uh, Asia is the next territory that we need to really have great impact. You know, unfortunately, with COVID, um, we've missed Asia uh, the last couple of years. So I, I right. think we need to. You know, we've got great races there in Singapore and Japan. China's off again this year, unfortunately. And like America, which has really needed a couple races, you know, now three, to really have a strong presence, China's huge. And right. such an important, you know, in Asia, such an important market. I think the J- Japan race is awesome and has a, a long history of Formula One, Singapore, uh, took Formula One yet to another uh, level. I think we're about 10 years into, into, well, I think even more than 10 years into Singapore now. And so I, I think we're in a great place in America and, and you know, encouraging Formula One. Let's let's get a second race in, in China or a race in Hong Kong or, uh, you know, India. We were uh, in for a few years, it'd be great to go back there. So I, go back. I, I, yeah, yeah I think, I think there's other parts of the world that we need to dial up before, well, um, a fourth race is necessary in America. Well, Zach, Zach, I'm sitting here in Seattle. What about a couple more races in North America? Yeah, I, I think, I, I think the three we have now, um, gives us what we need to have the sport be really, strong in America. So I, I don't think a okay. fourth or a fifth race is needed because that would come at the detriment at the expense of, of somewhere else. Correct. Right. Correct. Correct. Right. Well, look, Zach, we're a history podcast and we can't let you go without asking you about one other aspect of history. Cause I know that you um, you've raced historic cars, right? In historic um, uh, races. So um, I think it was, um, was Monte Carlo uh, historic? Yep. Uh, yep. Was one of those. So, you, do you still do that? And uh, and what's it like? Yeah, I, I, I love it. I uh, I am a car collector. I get out a few times a year. I wish I could do it more, but the day job, which uh, uh, I love, is uh, keeps me very busy. So I get out a couple times a year. I always use the Formula One summer break is a good time to go racing because I know. Uh, there's no racing then. Uh, and, and, you know, I get out and I enjoy the cars and, and the fellow competitors I race against who also have an appreciation for uh, historic cars. So, you know, I've gone from right. kind of collecting the, the diecast models to be in a fortunate position <laughs> where I can get the, I, yeah. I've got some of the full scale versions now. Big boys toys. What's the oldest thing you've, you've got that's still on the road? Uh, uh, 1965, 289 Cobra. You know what? That might have competed in the Sandusky, Ohio sprint car competition, which I witnessed as a 14 year old. Uh, Very much a long uh, time ago. Yep. 
100%. Well, Zach, it's been fantastic to have you. Thank you. So You're good. welcome anytime uh, you like. The history of Formula One is playing out before our eyes, and it's great to know that you're leading it. It's been fantastic to have you on, on the Hidden History Happy Hour. Thanks so much. Thanks Jack. for having me on. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Thanks, right. buddy. Cheers. Listeners, please make sure to tune in to our next episode. We will have another major announcement. First of all, Hidden History Happy Hour's first sponsor. And more importantly, from my standpoint as a lifelong bourbon drinker, the official bourbon of the Hidden History Happy Hour. We couldn't be happier, and we know you will love it. So tune in next time. And most of all, thanks to you, our listeners, for your continued support and participation. And keep the comments and ideas coming. And please tell your friends. Until next time, Alex Dean. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.